Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Welcome back, folks, for a special episode of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. Today I'm flying the Jupiter 2 solo without my trusty co-host, Kurt, but that's because we have a very special guest to interview, sci-fi fantasy master model maker, Mr. Jeff Wargo. Jeff is an extraordinarily talented scale model maker with expertise in both kit and scratch building techniques. Highly respected in the pro modeling community, Many of his dazzling creations have been the subject of articles for modeling publications such as Fine Scale Modeler and Sci-Fi and Fantasy Modeler. Over the last several decades, Jeff's produced scores of gorgeously crafted scale vehicles from a variety of sci-fi film and TV properties, including Fantastic Voyage, Thunderbirds, UFO, Space 1999, and of course, the Irwin Allen sci-fi TV series, among many others. In addition, Jeff has extensive professional experience in the model kit and toy industry as a mold fabricator, model pattern maker, and design engineer working for companies such as Lunar Models and Monogram Ravel Models. Later in his career, he transitioned along with the rest of the industry, becoming skilled in 3D printing and computer-aided design, working for various firms such as Zenith, and Molex Fiber Optics before retiring. Before we speak with him, a little background information on Mr. Wargo. Jeff grew up in the greater Chicago area and resides there still today. His early fascination for sci-fi fantasy modeling was inspired by watching the vintage 1960s shows such as Star Trek, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, Time Tunnel, and of course, Lost in Space. In the years since, he's not only become an expert model maker himself, He's made an extensive study of the miniature building and photographic techniques used to produce those dazzling special effects shots from movies and TV series in the era before CGI. In addition, he's also currently working on several other modeling projects that will be of particular interest to our audience. We're going to speak with Jeff today about his love for classic sci-fi TV shows and movies and get some behind-the-scenes information on how the original miniatures and effects were created for those productions, as well as a little surprisingly interesting information on the nuts and bolts of the plastic model kit industry. Now sit back and enjoy this captivating and informative interview with master model maker, Mr. Jeff Wargo. Mr. Jeff Wargo, sir, welcome to Alpha Control. It's a pleasure to have you on our podcast celebrating Erwin Allen's original Lost in Space. Well, thanks, Lane. Uh, I'm thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're thrilled, too. And it was kind of a funny story. You were actually introduced to me by, you know, someone that you know, a mutual friend of ours, master modeler Mark Myers, who I had an opportunity to interview him and strike up a friendship with. Yeah, I want to say thanks to Mark Myers, too, for putting us in contact. So I'm very impressed with the work he does. So Absolutely. thanks, Mark. <laughs> well, he's a real fan of yours, so and I think that's quite an endorsement. But when I spoke with you on the phone, I realized why, because you are really passionate about sci-fi and model making. And I was also lucky enough, since we don't live too far apart from each other, to get a chance to visit you and tour your uh, workshop a few weeks ago, which was a real pleasure, especially getting to see some of your fantastic model creations. I want to talk about a lot of that stuff. you got a fascinating background story as well, but I'd like to start off where I do with all my guests, and that's at the beginning. Tell our listeners how you first got to experience classic sci-fi TV and movie productions like Lost in Space and how much of an impact they've had on you in your life. Well, it goes way back a long time. My father liked science fiction. I can remember 
vividly watching original series Star Trek. And uh, Time Tunnel. The Invaders. The Invaders. A Quinn Martin production. And uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. I can actually remember those when they were being broadcast for the first time. Mm. Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Starring Richard Basehart. Uh, my father purchased a Zenith color TV set just so that he could have the neighbors over to watch the bears on Sunday. <laughs> and it, the advantage was, of course, I got to see original series Star Trek and Time Tunnel and Voyage all in vivid color the way they were hoping to sell those shows. Sure. As well as Thunderbirds. Four, three, two, one. Thunderbirds are go. And Speed Racer. Here he comes, here comes Speed Racer. He's a demon on wheels. He's a demon, and he's going to be chasing after someone. And the shows that followed after that. Basically, I, it was my father that got me into this. Yeah. So it's his fault. Ah, that's great. Wow, you were one of the lucky ones that had a color TV. That was a rarity yeah. back in those yeah, days. Yeah, that was the... Mm-hmm. They were expensive. They were expensive back then, too. But, you know, I mean, it was like something like $650 for a TV set. Sure. You know, when paychecks were $125 a week, that was like buying a new car. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And, of course, it made you popular in the neighborhood, I'm sure, like you said. Have the neighbors over to watch uh, the Bears game and, and Star Trek. But did your interest in sci-fi lead you to building models as a kid? I mean, we're about the same age, and model building was kind of a, a standard right, thing for kids right. our age. But uh, were they connected in any way? Yes, they were. And, of course, the uh, space program had a lot to do with it, too, watching the Apollo 11 landing. This is CBS oh, yeah. News, color coverage of Man on the Moon. The epic journey of Apollo 11. This morning, the launch of astronauts Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins, sponsored by the International... So, you know, the stuff that they were broadcast, watching the launches at school, they would bring a TV set in and we would get to see the live launches when they would go up. Kellogg's. Here from CBS News Apollo headquarters at Kennedy Space Center, correspondent Walter Cronkite. Good morning. It's T minus one hour, 29 minutes, and 53 seconds, and counting in just an hour and a half. If all goes well, Apollo 11 astronauts Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins are to lift off from pad 39A out there on the voyage man always has dreamed about. Next stop for them, the moon. So, but with the the active space program and the sci-fi stuff that was coming out, I just got hooked on it. (laughs) They're going through the final checkout of all the systems aboard the spacecraft to be sure they're really ready to go. These men will carry with them many other things. Many things that are not so nearly so easy to describe. There is the spirit of such men as Marco Polo and Columbus and Lindbergh. The dreams of Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, the vision of Kepler and Galileo, the skill of Shepard and Glenn, Shira, and Gagarin, Titoff, and all the others. And boring through the vastness, the blackness, and the cold of space, they'll carry the pledge made eight years ago by President Kennedy to put a man on the moon and bring him back safely in this decade. So it is now. Before they go, as their gleaming vehicle sits poised and peaceful out there behind me on pad 39A, that there is time, uh, if only briefly in this busy morning, 
to think of those three men and the burdens and the hopes that they carry on behalf of all mankind. So uh, I kind of found a, an expression in the science fiction sure. uh, aspect, the imagination of it, as well as the space program coming live. And then I, of course, wanted models of things. It started off taking Lincoln Logs, Tinker Toys, and Legos, and making uh, representations of things from the shows that I saw. I can remember doing a fire flash from Thunderbirds out of Lincoln Logs and Tinker Toys. Then it came, well, I want a phaser, I want a tricorder, a communicator, or, you know, I, I want a Jupiter 2, which, of course, they never came out with those things at the time. My mother, who was kind of a craft-type person at times, would uh, say, well, why don't you make it out of paper? And I learned how to draw. So I would do technical drawings of the phaser. And, of course, I had, like, the making of Star Trek. So it was like, okay, they got the picture in there and they got some dimensions. And then the second thing was, is my mother introduced me to Dove Soap. From Lieber House in New York City comes the greatest skincare discovery of our time. Its name is Dove. Every bar of new Dove is one quarter cleansing cream. Ordinary soap dries your skin, but Dove creams your skin while you wash. And said, this is a great material to carve in. And, of course, I was a, a Cub Scout, so I had the, the usual Cub Scout pocket knife and things like that. And Sure. Well, there's no Jupiter 2 model. There's no Chariot model. There's no uh, Space Pod model. So I carved them out of a block of soap. Wow. <laughs> Your skin has a velvety, just creamed feeling. That's because... And then it kind of moved on further from that. So I learned to work with wood, and I worked with plastics, and I worked with paints, and that's how I got to be a professional model maker. That's incredible. So it wasn't just building kits. You were into, like, fabricating right from a, an early age, it sounds like, huh? Pretty much, yeah. Pretty much it was like, well, I want what's not available, so if, since it's not available, I'll make it. I can remember one of the first things I did probably would have to be... In late 60s, maybe early 70s, um, I did a Jupiter 2. Here now is the Jupiter 2, the culmination of nearly 40 years of intensive research and the most sophisticated piece of hardware yet devised by the mind of man. Bold in concept, brilliant in execution, this most delicate yet most colossal of instruments makes possible man's thrust into deep space and will soon set out on its quest for a new world. This super spaceship stands two stories high. Probably about 12, 14 inches in diameter, uh, all out of paper. Wow. And uh, laid it up, and it even had working landing gear, which were absolutely pathetic, (laughs) because it would sit on a landing gear, and after about an hour, it would droop to one side or the other, because it was just wire, but you know, that old mechanism that people came up with for doing the the, the gear coming down, I figured that out, and I must have been only about 10 years old at the time. Oh, yeah. Well, it's so funny, you know, this is a common theme, I think. All of us that grew up in that era, you know, we all liked building model kits, but we were always so frustrated at the kits we couldn't get our hands on. And I've mm-hmm. talked to several people who sort of followed a similar path that you did. But in your case, you didn't just stop there. You kept going with it, didn't you? And eventually you wound up actually in the model kit industry. Can you tell us how that happened? Yeah, yeah. I had a couple of friends who wanted to work in film. So I started doing props and models for film work, uh, you know, the cheap little 16 millimeter sort of projects. We didn't quite get anything to the, the state of something like what Steven Spielberg did with his eight millimeter movie camera and, and sure. doing actual stories. But I wanted to work in film. So I graduated in 79 from high school and I went to the University of Illinois to study cinematography. Sure. Uh, uh, but that didn't quite work out. It's a long story, but there was a reason for it. I actually was able to go back and finish my education in 88. So I actually got a college degree. But at the time, it was not going to be possible for me to complete my education. Um, dropped out. I got a job as a plastics fabricator at a company in Northbrook, which is where I grew up. 
Mr. McGuire. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, I am. Plastics. Exactly. How do you mean? There's a great future in plastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? Yes, I will. I've said that's a deal. And learned to work in plastics there. And then I decided at one point, okay, I'm going to go out to Los Angeles and see if I can find work. So I, I went out to Los Angeles to try to get a job working in special effects and, and model making special effects. And I went to the various shops. Uh, I met Greg Jean, who uh, is one of the more prolific model makers in the film industry. Nice guy. Very, very friendly guy. Oh, wow. uh, we talked for about three hours on a day, and, and I'm sure he had projects he had to finish and get out, but he, he was very generous with, with his time. Uh, his shop was in uh, Marina Del Rey at the time, and I just walked by it, poked my head in, and it was like, oh my God. I, I didn't even know he was there. I was at <laughs> Boss Film. I, I tried first at Boss Film at the time. And he, he was just a couple of units down from where they were. And I was walking back to my car and I turned my head and I looked in and I saw the shop. I walk in and I see he's got the fiberglass robots from Lost in Space that he's uh, refurbishing. Wow. Uh, he had one of the 36-inch flying subs. I oh. believe it was the one that they filmed from behind because the front wasn't finished. He had this Clatu ship from Xavier Stood Still. Uh, he had the, the submarine that exploded in the voyage to the bottom of the sea movie. He had that there. It, it was just, he was a wonderful guy. He get, you know, freely gave his time and we talked and he told me a few techniques while we were there. Well, long story short, it didn't work out in Los Angeles. I ran out of money and I had to come back to Chicago with my tail between my legs. Oh, and I came back yeah, at the time, Chicago was a big area for uh, the hobby industry. Uh, Lindbergh, Monogram Model, Pache, a whole bunch of manufacturers were actually in the Chicago area uh, over the years. And um, I saw an ad for a uh, model maker, pattern maker at Monogram Models in Morton Grove. How do you snap up some great cars and planes? Rebel Monogram Snap Type Models. Build them yourself. Build them right, put them together, you with snap time. Model cars and planes you just snapped together without glue, including America's hottest racers, sports cars, and trucks. Snap together the new Dodge Viper RT-10. The body's molded in color so you don't have to paint it. So right. Out of sight. Build snap type model kits from Ravel and Monogram. They're a snap. And I applied, and I went in and interviewed, and I got the job as a pattern maker. That's I actually made uh, parts for the kit. You know, that's really cool, Jeff. Tell us what a model pattern maker is. And you might go into some detail about how plastic model kits are even made. I well, back then, it was it was very different than it is today. Uh, most of it is done with CNC equipment, uh, uh, CAD models, and, and things like that. But that back then, what we would do is the, uh, the engineering department would, would come up with a series of drawings, whether it be a car or an airplane. Uh, that was our bread and butter at, at Monogram with cars and then the planes. Um, I didn't get to do anything like any ships or spaceships at the time. I, I had just missed the Battlestar Galactica Buck Rogers model by about two years when no. I started there. Oh, that would have so, been fun. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I missed out on those. And there wasn't really anything there that was... Uh, the, the big thing that was coming out at the time was information on the F-117, the stealth fighter. Right, yes. Uh, yeah. So they came up with a their own version of what a stealth fighter would look like. And I actually made some parts for that that wound up in steel. And eventually, I don't know if that kit's even available or uh, uh, if it still exists. But it was their original idea. And, of course, details on the F-117 came out much later so that they could do an accurate one. But the rumors of a stealth fighter and a stealth bomber were, were floating around. So that was one of the earliest things that I had worked on there. 
what we would do is we would get the drawings from the engineering department for each of the individual parts. And then we would carve those out of basswood. basswood. And uh, bass, yeah, bass, it's a fine grain blonde wood with no knots in it. It's actually a material that's used more in the United States than the rest of the world. The rest of the world uses a wood called gelutong, which is pretty much the same, except its grain is a little bit, it's got a little bit larger grain to sure. it. Uh, Martin Bauer carved a lot of stuff out of gelutong. That's where I first heard about it. Martin was the uh, model maker that did all this, something like 80, 90 models for Space 1999. And he worked on Alien and right. Flash Gordon. Yep. I, uh, I first started carving gelutong because I had heard about it from Martin Bauer. But then when I went to Monogram, we used basswood. And uh, it's nice because it's a finer grain wood. And it seals much better. But getting back on track, we would take the engineering drawings and create a wooden pattern of each of the parts for the model. And then that would be laid out into an epoxy cast. The size of the parts were anywhere from two to two and a half times the actual size of what it would be in the kit. So we worked larger. I see. And that's because if you do an error of 10 thousandths of an inch and you reduce it two and a half times, you've only got an error of a couple of thousands right, of an right. inch by the time it gets cut and sealed. So it makes for a much closer fit. So we would take our wood parts, we would lay them out in what we call the mold blocks, which are areas of the mold that are cut and mounted in the mold as individual sections so that they can adjust it any way they want to for flow of the plastic when actually injecting the plastic into the cavity side and the core side of the model or the outside and inside in a two-part mold. Sure. So we would, uh, we would do those parts, we would do those casts, and then those were sent to Hong Kong and cut and steel through a reduction pantograph that they had there. So we're, we're talking about very old school at the time. Yeah, it's fascinating, um, though. That is that is interesting. And, you know, it's amazing to me. I, I'm assuming you're just working with standard wood carving tools to do this. If, I don't know if there's yeah, anything yeah. special. It's all, all by hand, though, right? This is handwork that you're doing, right? Well, there was, uh, there was a mill and a lathe for turning parts. Uh, we had a very good table saw, band saw, disc sander. Um, Sanded the tips of my fingers on my left hand really good one day on the disc <laughs> sander. That wasn't fun. <laughs> I mean, that's about the worst injury I ever had doing that, that type yeah. of work. Occupational hazard, I suppose. But the, Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. yeah I, I get it. But the point is it's a skilled task. It's not something you're not punching buttons into a computer and voila, the 3D printer has produced the part according to the engineering blueprints or whatever. It's it's taking your hand-eye coordination or your skill with the lathe or the bandsaw, whatever, to produce you know a model basically out of this basswood that's going to be used ultimately to produce the, the molds for the kit. I mean, that is just really crazy. And And the other aspect of it also, it wasn't just doing the parts. It was figuring out, okay, we need to draft these vertical surfaces so that it will pull from the mold. You can't do a vertical surface in a mold. Everything has to be drafted so that it will pull free from the core side of the mold, the inside of the mold. And then, of course, sometimes the engineers, they were rushed, so they would get us the best drawings they could, but there would be things that didn't exactly line up. So we would have to adjust. Uh, of the parts to make sure that everything would go together and fit. Like I said, they would be sent to Hong Kong. And then after they were cut, they came back to Morton Grove in which uh, they went to the mold shop and, and the polishing was done and the engraving. So all the fine detail work that you see, the scribe lines and the grills and things like that, that was all put in here in the United States. And then they would mount it in a mold base and send it out and stick it on the presses. Amazing. Yeah. So how long were you at Monogram? Almost two years. Um, I had to leave because I had a bad reaction to some of the materials I was working with. 
But while I was there, I was actually able to make uh, connections with lunar models at the time, and I started doing pattern work for them. Oh, so, wow. uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I did the um, 28-inch Sea View, both the four-window and the eight-window. Okay. I did the Flying Sub. I did the Spindrift. I did the Proteus. Wow. And I did the Orion Space Shuttle and Ares 1B from 2001. The Ares 1B was the first one I did for them. And of course, all I had to work with was the 2001 A Space Odyssey novelization paperback, mm -hmm. the uh, Making of Kubrick's 2001. And uh, well, I, I had uh, taken telepics of the Ares off of the movie from a Betamax copy of the film. I'm spending Wednesday night at the in-laws, but I'm not missing the Wednesday night movie. I'm working the late shift, but I'm not missing the late show. Thanks to Sony's revolutionary Betamax deck, which hooks up to any TV set, now you can automatically videotape your favorite show even when you're not home and watch it anytime you want. Good morning, gentlemen. I'm going home to watch the late show. So we're talking about back at a time when Betamax was still considered a viable format. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yeah. um, so that's what I had to work with, uh, albeit the model itself was pretty inaccurate because I just didn't have the reference. Sure. And then I did the Orion, uh, which I had some very good reference for, and that one was spot on. It wasn't until quite recently uh, another group came out with a uh, studio scale size Orion that is better than mine but i actually had information that other people never had and uh, i allowed adam johnson to print those photographs that i had in his 2001 the lost science books that came out about 10 years ago i had photographs of the orion and the moon bus that had never been published and i allowed them to be published there and then i donated them to the frederick ordway archives in uh, huntsville alabama so the photos I have are now properly stored and hopefully will be around for many more years. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's pretty interesting. So you did the Lunar Models gig, and then you really sort of dove into doing a lot of scratch-build projects yourself, model making. Just for the benefit of the audience, though, you kind of educated me on something. There's a difference between the terminology of model builder and model maker. Can you explain the difference? Well, a model maker is an actual profession. Modeler has become a profession now. But back in the day when I was working, it was a model maker. I see. Um, was the terminology. Modelers were the guys that built the kits. Gotcha. And put the kits together and maybe added some embellishments and painted them and stuff like that. Whereas um, model making was the actual aspect of going and creating something from literally scraps of whatever you had around, you know, a wood and plastic and metal. Primarily the difference between a model maker and a modeler is that a model maker does everything. Mm. Uh, he will do patterns. He will do fiberglass layups. He will do molds, uh, turn metal, turn wood, turn plastic, fine detail work. There, there's a lot of, variations in the term model maker too so it, it changes for different fields gotcha well you know, i was a model maker at monogram i was a model maker at zenith electronics uh i was a model maker at a couple of toy design companies i was a model maker at molex in their fiber optics division each place i did different things but essentially a model maker is a designer an engineer a craftsman, and uh, a problem solver. <laughs> so, in, uh, yeah, in the case of some of the projects that you showed me and some of the other ones that you've completed, uh, particularly your studio scale builds, those also require you to do research, tons of research, which I was just amazed at because obviously your goal is to try to have the most screen-accurate representation of what the filming miniatures were, that sort of thing. So you really have to do it all, don't you? You do. You do, actually. Yeah, it, it takes a lot. And when I did my first Thunderbird 2, it was tough because they had three 
different Thunderbird 2 model that they used in the filming of Thunderbirds. Uh, they, they did an initial Thunderbird 2, which is the one where you see coming out and launching and going up the ramp and taking off and things like that. And then they did a lighter fiberglass one, the same size, from a different pattern. It was originally supposed to be a half an hour series. And Lou Grade, who was the producer in charge of ITC at the time, told Jerry Anderson, no, this is an hour-long program. You want these to be an hour. So all of a sudden they had 10 episodes filmed, and they had to write filler for those 10 that they had filmed and come up with do hour-long stories for the program. And they also built a new Thunderbird 2. Um, they also built a smaller 18-inch size Thunderbird 2 or 16-inch. Uh, so there were three Thunderbird 2s that I had photographs of. And I had to pick one of those three to decide what mine would look like. You, you know, it's like, okay, well, I, I can use this, but I can't use that. <laughs> use this, but I can't use that. And it can be quite frustrating. Uh, case in point, the uh, voyage to the bottom of the sea. They had primarily two filming models that they used for the series. They had the eight foot six model that they used in the tank that usually the guy in the rubber suit was wrestling with and, and <laughs> stuff like that. Right. And then they had the uh, 17 foot model that they would take out to Searson Lake and they would do the surface shots or they, they would launch the flying sub from that one. Yes. And the shape of those are, are, are iconically different. How so? Well, um, the, the models, of course, the models were originally made for the movie uh, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. They had the eight window noses on them at the time. And they were beautifully made, uh, very, very close to each other. But, of course, they have time limits. So right. they have to get these in front of the cameras as quickly as they can. So they have Team A working on one model, Team B working on another, and Team C working on the third, which was the four-foot decoration model that you saw that they had on the set. And it, it was used briefly for the octopus scene where it grabs onto the front of the sub. Right. Um, but it was, that was primarily used as a um, set, uh, set decoration. Right. Like in uh, Admiral Nelson's office or something like that, right? Yes, yes. Or there was one in Nelson's office and then there was one in the nose on the TV series when they were filming it black and white. Uh, sure. They had those. But the primary model that they used was the eight-foot model. So that one was finished with a lot more details on it than the larger model. But the larger model is the one that everybody tries to reproduce because it looks the best with a surface shot. But that model was barely finished underneath, and that was just used for the surface shots. When they went and did the, uh, the rework on it for adding the flying sub bay, they used that model to launch the flying sub and then dropped basically an 18-inch flying sub from that model. But that's all it was really used for. And it was a bearer to work with. It was very difficult for them to work with that because it was so large. But, of course, it looks good sailing on the surface. The 8-footer, the 8.5-footer, was used in the tank where they would have several divers in with the monster of the week uh, wrestling the sea view or being chased by another sub and things like that. They would film that in water, in a tank, and undercrank the camera so that it moved slowly and uh, appeared to move more like a, a real ship. Yeah, but it did have details on it. For example, it did have some lighting, and uh, I think it had operating... It, well, at least it appeared it had operating propellers, and uh, maybe the diving planes on the conning tower were articulated. Yes, uh, the eight eight and a half foot model was actually the most functioning of the models that were used. It did have operating diving planes. It, it was the one that they launched the mini sub from, so it had the doors on the bottom that would open up, 
Sure. There was a, a rudder on each of the two nacelles and then along the keel, and they were tied together so that when the rudder would turn, all three of them would move at the same time. Uh, and then uh, what a lot of people don't know is there was actually a series of planes inside the engine. No, I didn't know Which were that. driven from a central shaft. So, so there was like a cross pattern in the engine, and there was a plane that would deflect the bubble stream up and down, and then there was the rudders that would do it right and left. Mm. Uh, they actually had no propellers, at least as far as I can tell, they didn't have an actual propeller in there. But they had what was a, a bubble generator. Oh, okay. So it would, yeah. it, it would create that sort of look. It was the same thing for the ballast tank. They had a bubble generator. They would just pump air out from underneath, so it would look like it was... Uh, blowing all tanks, blowing all tanks. Blowing all the <laughs> ballast tanks, right, right. And, of course, when the second season, when the show went into color and they added the flying sub, they had to modify the filming models. So they modified both the 17-footer and the 8.5-footer. And, of course, being on a television schedule, the guys only had about a week that they had to make the modification. Mm. So they had to basically clay up both models with the new shape and the addition of the flying sub bay and then do either a fiberglass or a plaster mold off of that. And then they cut the, the original noses off, which wound up going in a dumpster. Uh, oh, that's and a shame. They, yeah, it is. It is. But, you know, it was just they didn't have the space to keep that. Done, you know? it, it, it's in the way. <laughs> yeah. They would cut the noses off. They laid up the new nose for both sea views and attached them to the existing remainder of the model. Because of the larger size of the 17-foot model, they were able to hold the contour shapes a little bit better. But the 8.5-footer, of course, they were exceptionally rushed on, and they didn't quite get the shape right. So there's almost an asymmetrical appearance to the 8.5-footer that doesn't necessarily exist on the 17-foot oh, really? uh, in the four-window configuration. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, it was, you know, you know, you get into a situation where hey, we've got to get this going. If you were to do it with enough time, you'd create formers and shapes, guide shapes that you would put on each side to make sure that contours were all the same. But, you know, a guy comes in in the morning and has to have it played up in the afternoon so that they can get the mold done. And they get the mold done the first day, and then they come back the second day, and they cut off the old nose, and then they lay up the new nose and mount that, and it's all a very rushed sort of thing that they have. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think one time there was a blooper. I heard rumors of this. I don't know how true it is, but it's one where the, the guy in the monster suit is wrestling with the eight-and-a-half-foot CVU model, and the nose falls off. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to see that one. Yeah, I, I, I've never seen it, but I heard rumors that that's what happened. I, so I can't say for sure that it actually did. But it's possible. It's yeah. possible. Because, you know, if you're rushed to get it done, and obviously the new joint is a weak spot in the model. So it could very easily have happened. But the difference is basically that the shape of the 8.5-foot sea view is different from the 17-foot sea view. And a lot of people like the, the shape of the 17-foot CV because it's a larger model. You know, it looks more realistic. But I kind of like the 8.5-footer because it's, it's the one we saw most of. We saw everything on it. So, uh, and obviously, TV sets at the time with their, uh, you know, 450, 500 lines of resolution and the early color technology, it, you really wouldn't be able to tell the difference. It's just nowadays with our... Uh, uh, high-res 720 scans or 1080 scans of the original negatives that we actually start seeing different aspects of it visibly show up to the viewer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the new TVs and the uh, high-def Blu-rays, it reveals a lot of things that people at the time wouldn't have been able to pick up on.
I hope you're enjoying this fascinating interview with master sci-fi model maker Jeff Wargo as much as I am. His impressive work as a pro model maker is matched by his knowledge of miniature fabrication used in Lost in Space and other movies and films. He's got more to share about his passion for model building, special effects, and much more. So sit tight for part two of our interview with sci-fi fantasy model maker, Mr. Jeff Wargo. I'm fascinated with this whole discussion about the sea view because it's just an example of the depth of knowledge you have about these original filming miniatures. And that's also an example of the kind of research you had to do to build your own studio scale. Yes. Eight-foot sea view model, which I got to see. It's a work in progress, but it looks beautiful. Tell us about that. Well, I must have been on something to do that. Because <laughs> it's like, where do you put an eight-and-a-half-foot model? Where do you store it? Where do you display it? Yeah. But a friend of mine actually got a casting off of the original nose of the sea view. Um, that was found. I guess when they modified the, the eight-and-a-half-footer for um, Captain Nemo. Oh, yeah. So somebody pulled it out of the dumpster uh, and saved it. I, I don't know who actually did it out in California, but the person who had it actually laid up a fiberglass mold of the nose, and a friend of mine got a copy of it, loaned it to me, and I made a mold off of that. So I'm probably about two generations down with the uh, nose that I have on mine. So there's probably about a sixteenth of an inch worth of shrinkage on that from the original size for the nose. But I got the nose and made the mold of it. And I was sitting there going, well, do I finish this by just mounting it to like a plaque of wood, you know, with just the nose sticking out kind of like the, the trophy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, I first thought of that and maybe do a little flying sub bay and, and some detailed interior or, well, gee, let's see, I, I got my own shop downstairs. Why don't I build the whole thing? Yeah, right. <laughs> so, I, uh, of course, I bought an 8-inch diameter acrylic plastic tube, and then I made a pattern for the uh, tail section of it. I mean, we're talking about something that I've been working on for close to 20 years. Man. Off and on, yeah. So, it's quite... <laughs> quite interesting i get i go through spurts of well i really should get this thing finished and then i work on it and then something distracts me and i have to put it aside and then it sits for another couple of years but right now it's it's pretty much in a good position it's you know got basically everything on it it's probably about 80 percent done i'm close to getting it finished but i'm sitting there going like what do i do with it after i'm done I know. It is beautiful. And I, I for one, am cheering uh, that you'll be able to get that thing finished. But you are right. What do you do with it after that? I mean, something mm -hmm. like that really should be in a museum or something like that. But maybe there's a collector out there who would uh, like to uh, commission you to finish it. That would be awesome. Well, I, I would be willing to do that, especially if it wound up in a film museum uh, or a science fiction museum, if there was somebody out there that had an interest in that because it would be nice to go on display. It's one of those things that really needs to be out there for the public to see. Absolutely. And, and I'm trying to make it as accurate to the size model that I can tell from whatever reference I can dig up on it. Uh, and I think I've gotten pretty good. I think I've gotten pretty close. I, I've got an operating uh, or an opening uh, mini sub bay. I've got the tail section worked out with the planes and the uh, rudders going. I've got the Diving planes, all i got to do is put a connector for all of those crevices and things like that to articulate it. And then, of course, they add some lighting to it because the filming model had lights. And then just simply decide, well, do I do a detailed interior of it or do I do just like the filming model and leave it with a superstructure and a couple of figures in it on a shelf on the inside. So it's about 80% done, but getting it to that next point that's the hard part. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I can tell it's hard for you to make a decision on what you're going to focus on at any one given time because you've got so many varied interests. You also built this beautiful studio-scale filming miniature replica of the Moonbus from 2001. Tell us about that. 
Yes. Um, well, a couple of years back, I had some serious health issues, and I was out of work at the time. Wound up going to the hospital. They saved my life. I came home. I was looking for a project to kind of do as a recovery project. Previously, I had done a studio-scale moon bus back in the early 2000s, and then I sold that off to a guy who wanted it. Since then, I had been toying with doing another one. Uh, so over the years, I was working with a software called SolidWorks, uh, which is a design engineering software. And I had been working on the shape of Moonbus in SolidWorks doing a 3D CAD model of it. Because after I got out of model making, I went into design engineering uh, and automation. Sure. I had moved from doing prototypes and things like that to actually doing assembling machinery of things using robots and pneumatics and all this other stuff to assemble a product. Uh, the, the, that was the next step because uh, model making, uh, again, it, it's a dying industry. The technology has changed with the engineering softwares that are currently available, and they're uh, reasonably affordable for the professional. Uh, they're not something that an amateur would go out and buy, but for somebody who does professional engineering, it's very reasonable to pay the kind of money for them and the computer to run it and to do freelance engineering on there. And I obviously, I have my own copy of SolidWorks that I do do engineering on, and I get a moon bus in there. Uh, I had also purchased a uh, MakerBot 3D printer to experiment with before I got sick, and then I got sick. So I was looking for something that I could do to kind of help recover after what I had been through. And I output files on MakerBot, printed things up, eventually wound up having 33-inch model, which was the size of the filming model from 2001, and um, built the thing. Uh, so it was, uh, it was my recovery project. It's as close to the original, I guess, as you could possibly make it. And again, that's in no short measure due to the amount of research you did. And you had access to some great materials that you shared with me. But one of the fascinating things that I thought was so interesting was they were using parts off of existing model kits, like model airplane kits or rocket kits, that sort of thing. And you were able to track down what those kits were, and they would take just specific parts I think the term is kit bashing that a lot of these model makers use to add detail to the surface of different spacecraft models. You were able to reverse engineer the size based off of those pieces in some cases. Is that true? Yes, yes, exactly. That is. I um, got access to some very high-resolution photographs of the model uh, on top of the ones that I had originally. Through that, I was actually able to, in Photoshop, bring the image in and there's a measuring tool and I would have the actual kit part and I would measure that with a caliper and then I would do a scale. So I actually blew up the image to the full size of the model and was able to take measurements off of that to more accurately build it in SolidWorks and to get the shape right. And I had help, quite a bit of help from people. I had uh, Adam Johnson helped me and Piers Bazzoni, uh, another author, also helped me quite a bit in reference material. And then Martin Bauer helped me with uh, some kit identification. And I can't stress enough, a man named Keith Case, who has done a brilliant job of tracking down these kit parts. Uh, he shared his information with me. So all of that went into building this recreation of an iconic filming model. Yeah, because I guess famously Kubrick, the story goes that he had those miniatures destroyed at some point after 2001 was finished filming. At least that's what I remember reading because he didn't want anybody else using the models in other productions. But uh, I guess they have recovered at least one of the original filming models. The Ares was found someplace. Yeah. The, sh the shuttle that goes from the space station, space to, station the to the moon. Right. Yes. Yes, they found that. Um, that was donated to, I guess, a school or a college to use as a reference. Uh, the... Kubrick destroying everything is actually kind of one of those urban myths. From what I understand, the real story is, is that MGM was storing everything, and Kubrick was trying to find a museum to donate 
the models to for display. Uh, I guess the Smithsonian at one point was considering getting the stuff. Obviously, to store that stuff costs money. Sure. Stanley Kubrick didn't want to pay the money for the storage on it. MGM didn't want to pay the money for it. So they basically got rid of it. They, they binned it. One of the few items to survive was the Ares through somebody getting a hold of it through Stan, I believe through Stanley Kubrick. I could be mistaken, but um, so that's more in line with what really happened. It was more a matter of paying for storage fees as opposed to uh, actually destroying the models because he didn't want them showing up. Ah, okay. Well, thanks for clearing that up. I didn't know that detail, but right. The, but sto- the-, the story where that comes from is, I guess, when Stanley Kubrick filmed Doctor Strangelove. They built a B-52 bomber that was used in the uh, the Slim Pickens scene. And after the film had been done, somehow or another, he saw it being used on another film and said, well, he wasn't going to let that happen. So that kind of led to the story of, well, he decided to have everything destroyed. But uh, actually, everything was destroyed because people got tired of paying for the storage costs on it, and they needed the space. Yeah, like you said, it does cost money, but thankfully you were uh, contributing to keeping that film legacy alive in some measure because your miniatures actually, I understand, now on display as part of a Stanley Kubrick exhibit in London. Yes, it's at the London Design Museum. It will be there until the 17th of September. Uh, And then I guess in January or February 2020, there's going to be an exhibit opening up at the Museum of the Moving Image in New York, and it will be on display there in New York. So it's actually coming back to the state. Oh, cool. Well, that'll make it a little bit so, easier for folks uh, this side of the pond to get a chance to go see it in person because the. Yes, I, yes. I only got to see pictures of it, but it looks great. And, you know, based on what I saw in your shop of the other models you've done, I'm sure it's exquisite. So that's really cool. Now, one of the things, Jeff, that you also showed me, you had a ton of stuff in your workshop, a ton of (laughs) things, too much to actually detail here. But one of them that I thought was really cool and and lost in space related was your replica of the Traveling Man, the Hapgood spaceship. Tell us about that model. I kind of have a a warm feeling towards that. Even though Welcome Stranger is not one of the best episodes, it's one of the better ones in the series and i don't know i was again i was just looking for something to do and of course the things that i didn't have finished weren't appealing to me so i started a new project it kind of grew out of well let's see mobius has done the uh, space pod and the chariot and what if i were to do another ship from it. Because I'd also toyed with the idea of doing the, the the diving bell from Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, but not just the diving bell. It would have been the reactor chamber from the raft. It would have been the intergalactic messenger service from <laughs> a change of space. It would have been um, Zalto's ship. In, in that one, it, that was also, it was the diving bell modified with different doors and things like that on it. So I was thinking about that. I was also thinking I, I got to do a diving bell for the Sea View model that I did. So if I did a pattern for that, I could build all of those other ones. And anyways, it, uh, it started out well. It would be the same size as the Mobius models, and then I thought, well, those are too small. You know, being the the guy that can do things other people can't. I decided to do it in one twelfth scale. Yeah, it's a pretty uh, good size. I mean, it's a... Yeah, it is. It is. What is it, about uh, 18 inches long or so? It's got to be maybe even longer Right. No, I think it's about 18, 18 to 20 tall yeah. when, it, when it's got the nose cone on it. And then uh, maybe about uh, 12 to 14 from the, the fin to fin distance. Um, but obviously that started out also as well. I've got the... Um, DVDs of the episodes. I'll take frame grabs from the, the episode and I'll, you know, scale it up from there and come up with, 
what I can get. And then, and then of course, I realized, well, you know, this was also used in Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Um, That's right. Yeah, they did yep. use that in Voyage to the yep. Bottom of the Sea, didn't they? A couple of times. Uh, I think it was the Indestructible Man in the first season used it. And then they modified it with that inflating rubber monster that would come off. And I, what I think it happened was, I think it was an Indestructible Man... And then they modified it for Welcome Stranger. And then they cut the legs down and used it for, uh, not Monster from the Inferno. That was the one with this big tooth, though, and the brain. But it was this early second season episode. Yeah, I remember that, too, but I can't quite uh, place the episode date. When we get off to the podcast, it'll pop right into my head. And <laughs> like, oh, I should have I known that. Yeah. The people out there are probably going that man, this guy needs to get his facts straight. <laughs> hey, it's a Lost in Space podcast, not a Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea podcast. <laughs> but, you know, that's interesting. So you basically, because uh, we don't, do we not know any details about the filming miniature for that one? I would assume that it had been at Fox and it had made the rounds. It, it was used in Voyage. It was used in uh, Lost in Space. And it got modified to this, it got modified to that, and then finally wound up uh, in the bin because it, it became passe, you know, old, old hat. It was it was like a Flash Gordon spaceship as opposed to yeah, yeah, something that would you know be you know. We were talking, we were looking at real space stuff, and then we were looking at you know at the Enterprise and the Jupiter Two and things like that. So. This was the pre-kit bashing days when actually the uh, the model makers had the design. They would actually design the models from scratch. I kind of look at the dividing line to be either Space 1999 on TV or Silent Running in the movie. Sure. Where it was actually designed before function, and after that it was whatever we can scrounge to get it in front of the cameras as fast as possible. Battlestar Galactica, Star Wars. Right, right. things like that. I have that sort of demarcation line at Space 1999, Silent Running. Uh, and Space 1999 had basically original concepts that were detailed. And to me, after that, Space well, Space 1999 was kind of like a 50-50. It was either scrounging to get it done fast, or it was these nice wood-carved things that Martin Bauer did. So when we went to model makers actually becoming more modelers in the industry. Um, I got Because I think what started happening is the more advanced hobbyists started getting the jobs in the film industry and continuing with that sort of, okay, well, we're going to start with whatever we can find at the hardware store and, and we're going to put kit bits on it kind of thing. And I think that's kind of where the term modeler has taken over as opposed to model maker of course you get the people who are actual model makers that see the difference and then of course modeler is a term that's come to be used frequently in cg work right which has kind of been another major revolution in the entire special effects industry but i still have sentimental admiration, I suppose, for the good old-fashioned days when the guys in the Fox model department were building the models and doing the kind of stuff that you're still doing, which is one of the reasons I admire so greatly and appreciated so much the chance to get to meet you, Jeff, and see what you do. And I, I had an opportunity to take quite a few pictures while I was there, so I'll share some of those when we get around to posting this podcast. But as we round things off, let us know what else you are working on. What are some of the future projects you've got in mind? Well, I started doing the uh, Chinese laser platform in 2001, only in the movie for about 25 seconds. 
Right. But in Adam Johnson's 2001 book, 2001, The Lost Science, uh, he has some original artwork that they used. They never did any plans for those models, the orbital bombs at the beginning of the space sequence of the movie. They never did any actual blueprint drawings. They only did some art department sketches with dimensions on it. Mm. And um, Lee Stringer has done a beautiful uh, American bomb that's also on display in that 2001 exhibit. And I thought, well, I'd like to do something 2001. I got a whole list of projects. I'm helping uh, Andy Grimshaw do his studio scale Aries 1B. He's in England. And I've been doing some CAD work and some 3D printing to help him get his project finished. And I was looking for another 2001 project for myself. Obviously, the Orion's been done several times. I decided, well, I'll pick one of the bombs. And the choice was between doing the Chinese bomb and an unused uh, Russian bomb, one that wasn't actually in the movie, but they built a model for. Both of which I have some very... Uh, high-res images of and can identify kit bits from. So I decided I'm going to do the Chinese one. It looks fairly simple and straightforward. And I'm actually hoping to have it done by December so that I can include it when uh, the moon bus goes to New York in January. I'm hoping to have it finished by then. Oh, that'd be Uh, great. That's the, the current project. That'd be great. Well, I'm just shocked, Jeff, that you didn't decide to do the studio scale discovery. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. That thing's only what? Oh, don't even tempt me. (laughs) 70 feet long, wasn't it? Something like that? The model, from my calculations, the model was actually 57 feet long. And Adam also did his own independent calculations and agrees with me based on studio drawing dimensions and things like that. They say the model was 54 feet long, but I think that was actually a uh, misrepresentation. Uh, the sphere is 54 feet in diameter in actual size. In other words, that's the size. It, it was supposed to be 54 feet. What did you say now? 54 feet wide? 52 to 54 feet in diameter, the sphere. Okay, okay. On the actual discovery. The discovery would be about 515 feet long. Wow. Um, so uh, the book says 750, but, you know, this is all based on whether they were reading early technical art drawings and things like that when they were playing with the design and stuff like that. And I think the 54-foot length uh, was one of those things that somebody saw the sphere as 52, 54 feet in diameter. Because actually... The sphere on the filming model was a six-foot diameter sphere that they purchased. And at one-ninth scale, it would have been 52 feet in diameter, true scale. Right. So you add a couple of layers of uh, eighth-inch and quarter-inch plastic, it easily comes up to close to 54 feet in diameter. Amazing. uh, After detailed. So... My research and my calculations, I have the discovery, the large discovery at 57 feet and one ninth scale. Um, yeah, I think and, you you have a pretty good size shop, but you might need just a little bit bigger shop if you actually decide to. <laughs> well, you know, I actually am toying with the idea of not doing the whole studio scale discovery, but doing just the engine. Oh, just the uh, engine. One of Just one of the engines. I have uh, most of the kits that were used to detail the inside of that, and I've identified probably about 80% of what's in there. Uh, That was another project I was toying with uh, and allowing that to go out on display, too. But in the long run, I opted for the Chinese laser platform. I like that, you know, it's got kind of like that flower shape with the radiators in the front, and then it's got the... uh, solar panels that look kind of like wings. and So it's very, very dynamic looking shape. How large a model is that? It's three feet, two inches long. Wow. It's, it's bigger than I thought. Yeah. It's bigger than I yeah, thought. Yeah. Wow. Well, you're never at a loss for things to, <laughs> projects to work on there, Jeff. So uh, that's great. Well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time today and joining us on Alpha Control. 
It's been a real pleasure speaking with you and getting to hear all these details. I know it's going to be a treat for our listeners. We'll link to your Facebook page. Is there any place else folks can catch up with what you're doing, or is that the best place? That's the best place. If they want to uh, look me up on Facebook, I'm there. There's a lot of photographs of the stuff I have. There's uh, Obviously, there's uh, traveling man pictures in there and uh, some of the other lost in space, voyage to the bottom of the sea, land of the giants related stuff that I've done. Well, more recently, I do work in SolidWorks, so I do CAD models. Sure. I engineer it first, and then sometimes I output for a 3D printer, or sometimes I make things by hand. It helps to have a decent shop to work in, too. So, yeah. You know. Well, it's like Santa's <laughs> workshop in there for me. I really enjoyed visiting it. So we barely scratched the surface. You and I have had several conversations. And uh, trust me, folks, Jeff is a wealth of information, and we could talk for hours. But we'll leave him wanting more, and we'll catch up with you down the road, Jeff. So thanks again for coming on Alpha Control. I'm glad to do it. I'm glad you asked me. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> That was a blast talking with pro model maker and special effects expert, Jeff Wargo. You can tell he's truly passionate about his craft. Can't wait to see how his new projects turn out. In the meantime, we will be back next time with another episode of Alpha Control, where Kurt and I will get back to reviewing our beloved original Lost in Space. Until then, take care, and we'll see you soon. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.